What does law have to do with economics? Today on The Curious Task, I speak with David Friedman. Welcome to The Curious Task from the Institute for Liberal Studies, where we explore economics, politics, philosophy, and other ideas from a classical liberal perspective. I'm Alex Aragona, your host, and today I'm speaking with David Friedman. While David began his academic career in physics and earned his PhD in physics from the University of Chicago, he is chiefly known for his scholarly contributions to economics and law. He's the author of five books of nonfiction, as well as some novels. To name two examples on the nonfiction side, David's The Machinery of Freedom, Guide to Radical Capitalism, is where he argues that an economic analysis of impact of state action points to an anarchist conclusion. In Law's Order, What Economics Has to Do with Law and Why It Matters, David shows how directing the law to seek economic efficiency can lead to the achievement of justice. The latter book is the one that will form the basis of our discussion today. David, welcome to The Curious Task. Thank you. Glad to be here, virtually at least. (laughs) Virtually at least, exactly. And it's great to have you on virtually. So David, we base each of our episodes around a question and go over the answers and conversation takes us. Our question today is, what does law have to do with economics? And that's an opportunity for us really to introduce and explore your thoughts on how economic thinking can be applied to law and legal problems. So the first thing I wanted to start with is more of a context setting, actually, for what we mean by law and how it's created. I want to start right at the beginning. You say in your book, the legal rules that we are most familiar with are laws created by legislatures and enforced by courts and police. But even in our society, much of the law is the creation not of legislatures, but of judges embedded in past precedents that determine how future cases will be decided. For those unfamiliar, can you elaborate on this whole area of law people don't think of? Sure. Uh, The U.S. is part of the Anglo-American common law system, which evolves from English law. And in theory, that's mostly judge-made law uh, and increasingly, I think, has been supplemented by legislative law, which sort of has always been around. The kings of England were making laws a very long time ago. But the basic mechanism is that a judge trying to decide a case looks at the decisions other judges have made in the past. So it's a system of precedent, and in particular of a high-level court in our system, the Supreme Court, uh, but even below that, a higher level than the one that's making the decision, uh, has made a rule. That rule tends to be respected. That's precedent. Uh, One of the the things I, I, I go through in the book, which I thought was sort of interesting, is that precedent, to some extent, even applies for an American court looking at British decisions, because there's a, there's a sort of an underlying idea that the common law has a logic to it, has a structure to it. And therefore, although the British court doesn't have any authority over the American court, the British court is an authority on what the law is and therefore can be cited. And I give an example where, in fact, the American court ended up disagreeing with the British court, but felt it was obligated to say why first, so to speak. Uh, uh, so, so that's, but of course, as I also point out in the book, law really is broader than what we usually think of as law, that, that, that what I'm looking at are systems of rules where something happens, where you do something and you are in some sense punished, rewarded, whatever. And there are systems of rules which really have the same logical structure, as it were, of law that we don't think of as laws at all. Sort of the one of the big ones for us would be systems of norms. 
so that there are patterns of how you behave and you never will up in a court, but if you behave in certain ways, people will think less of you. Uh, think about, as far as I know, there is no law about not cutting into lines. <laughs> but if you're in a grocery store and you cut into the line, people will be very annoyed at you. Right. Uh, some, they probably, probably nobody will punch you out. Uh, but there will be costs of some sort imposed. And you can really think of those as, as a different part of the legal system, even though not what we, what we usually call law. And there are a lot of other things of, of, of that sort. So, that's, so I think the general subject includes those, although most of the work is on law, uh, narrowly defined. And, and as the listener goes through this tour with us and thinks about it, so, so is it fair that we just basically divide these under the, crim- the umbrellas of criminal law on the one hand, which involves states, legislatures, and so on, and then civil law on the other? Civil law has things like No, divorce. but civil law also involves states and legislatures. Okay. So can you... The, what, the distinction between civil and criminal, it's, very, it's interesting. One, I spend a chapter, one of my favorite talk topics, which I haven't given for a fair while, is should we abolish the criminal law? Right. In which I start out with the observation that we really have two legal systems that are doing the same work through different mechanisms. That you do something bad to somebody, the legal system intervenes, something bad happens to you, that's a reason not to do bad things. That could describe your assaulting somebody and the police intervene and you get put in jail for a week. But it could also describe your driving carelessly, damaging someone else's car, he sues you. That's civil, that's tort law. And uh, the result is you have to pay damages. So those are two different mechanisms. It's not entirely clear why we have both of them. And I discussed that at some length because one of the interesting questions is, could you shift to a system which was pure tort? I never, I don't really look at systems that are pure criminal, although on paper, the legal system of imperial China is pretty close to, to pure criminal. That hmm. it, it, it turns out that, that the way it actually worked was not so close. But, but if you look at what, the legal authorities thought they were doing, as it were, in China a few hundred years ago. It was a system where if I lend you money and you don't pay it back, there isn't a mechanism to sue you. Hmm. What I can do is to report you to the district magistrate as a swindler. And the district magistrate can choose to ignore me. He can choose to tell you, if you don't pay, pay him back, I will convict you of something. But it's really up to him. So in that sense, it at least in, on paper looks like a pure criminal system, although the way it actually seems to have worked is that largely it was done by the two parties bargaining under the threat of, of criminal things. But, but anyway, that would be a long, a long story. But anyway, but, but, but in our system, the two systems have different rules in a bunch of different ways that in theory, intent is required for crime, but not for tort. In theory, the standard of evidence is very high for criminal law, is much lower for tort law. Uh, That the way I like to sometimes put it is that O.J. Simpson was first acquitted of the crime of killing his wife and then convicted of the tort of killing his wife. Right. And and that might have been the right decision, because in principle, at least, criminal conviction requires proof beyond a reasonable doubt, Mm. beyond a shadow of a doubt. And civil conviction requires proof by a burden of, by the burden of the evidence, more likely than not, and that's a much lower standard. And so, so there are lots of lots of differences, and it's 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 
And there's a sense in which I've argued that the another legal system I've looked at in some detail is the legal system of Saga period Iceland a thousand years ago. And that was a system where, in effect, if some if you killed somebody, his relatives sued you. Mm -hmm. Uh, And in fact, that is still true, I think, in Saudi Arabia, not in Iceland, but under Islamic law. Uh, killing somebody is really treated as a tort against his, his kindred, not as a crime against the state. So that under strict Islamic law, which Saudi Arabia doesn't have, but they're closer than most other countries, if you kill somebody, his relatives uh, institute a legal case. Uh, if they win and it was first degree murder or the equivalent of that, they can insist on having you executed. But they have the option of require of, of, of accepting DIA, which is a money payment. Uh, and they even have the, there is a fixed amount of DIA, but they've got the option of accepting less or of accepting nothing if they feel like it. Uh, and the only, the only part of it in Islamic law that isn't, that isn't the equivalent of civil law, as far as I can tell, is that there is also a, a debt to God. And so if you kill somebody, you are also supposed to, I think, free one believing slave or fast for two months. Hmm. That's a religious punishment. Uh, but the basic legal punishment is, is, is really treating it as, as civil. Uh, now, modern Saudi Arabia, you, they'll, they'll also put you in jail for a while. Uh, so it's not a pure Islamic system, but, but it's got a good deal of it left. So anyway, so, so, so that, that is a distinction, but it's, it, it's not as, as clean a distinction as we usually think of. And the sense in which one of them is state and one of them isn't is that criminal law, the process of gathering evidence and of prosecuting the case is done by a government employee, whereas tort law, that's done by an agent of the victim, namely his lawyer or anybody his lawyer hires hires to do it. Uh, but even that isn't that that sharp, because if you look at 18th century English criminal law, which is another subject I've looked at, that was a system where it was up to the victim to prosecute. Mm. It was a system where you didn't have public prosecutors. So uh, on the other hand, you, you, you also didn't have damage payments. So it wasn't, it wasn't tort law, but it was a system in which if I stole your horse, it was up to you or people you hired to find out who did it to bring the evidence to the to, to, to the local constable to arrest me and then to the magistrate to convict me. And then when I was convicted, they hang me, they, they hung me or they transported me to the new world for 18 years of indentured slavery, or they did something else to me, but none of them was a, was a damage payment. Uh, so that's my most recent uh, book is a, book on legal systems very different from ours, which was a good deal of fun to write. And that includes a chapter on that system, a chapter on the Icelandic system, a chapter on imperial Chinese law and so forth. And and part of sort of part of the fun of all of this is that economic analysis of law isn't just about modern American law. It's a set of tools that can be used to make sense of of a whole bunch of things. But let me go back to the, I should say the question is not really what does law have to do with economics, although that's somewhat interesting. It's what does economics have to do with law? That, that the, from the standpoint of an economist, a legal system is, among other things, a system of incentives. The legal system says, if you do this, that will happen to you. And then the economist says, well, what is it in your, in your interest to do given those incentives? And if it's in your interest to do something other than what we want you to do, maybe you've got the law wrong. So the example I sort of start with for that that point is to imagine you're in a legal system where the most severe punishment is life in prison. 
And somebody says armed robbery is a very serious offense. So we ought to give life in prison for armed robbery. And the constitutional scholar says, is that cruel and unusual punishment? And the legal philosopher says, is that just? And the economist says, do you really want armed robbers to routinely murder their victims? Because after all, if the punishment for armed robbery and the punishment for armed robbery plus murder are the same, the additional punishment for the murder is zero. And if you kill your victim, he can't describe you to the police or identify you in a lineup later or whatever. So that's looking at it in terms of what are the incentives this law gives people, not in terms of uh, what is right or just or whatever. Uh, and, And that turns out to be a fairly powerful set of tools. Uh, One way in which it gets used, but not the only way in which it can be used, is to say, uh, suppose you wanted to construct legal rules that maximized what what economists call economic efficiency, which is very, very loosely speaking, the size of the pie, the degree to which everybody gets what he wants. And it's obviously a much more complicated concept than that, because how do you trade off my getting and your getting and so forth? And you guys spend time in several books discussing that. But for first approximation, think of it as maximizing the size of the pie. And you can then say, all right, what are the legal rules that do that? And one sort of very standard example in that is to take the economist's idea of what's called Pigouvian taxation, which is I do something that imposes a cost on other people. We want it to be in my interest to do it only if the benefit to me is larger than the cost to them, because that raises the size of the pie, so to speak. Well, how do we do that? We say, all right, if I impose a cost in air pollution of $10 each on 100 people, that's $1,000. I'll pay a $1,000 fine. If preventing the air pollution costs me more than $1,000, i will pay the fine and, and, and keep polluting. If it doesn't, it doesn't. And that's the right answer, that Contrary to what non-economists think, the optimal level of pollution is not zero, uh, just as the optimal number of traffic accidents is not zero. You could abolish all traffic accidents by abolishing all traffic, but the cost of doing that is greater than the benefit. So if you're thinking uh, in those terms, you can then say, well, tort law looks sort of like a form of Peruvian tax because I commit a tort which injures you by a certain amount. You sue me, and the rule is supposed to be that you make good the damage done, meaning if you've injured me by $1,000, you pay me $1,000. Looks very much like a Pigouvian tax, a way of making it in your interest to take precautions against injuring me when the precaution costs you less than the average amount of injury and not when it costs you more. So that would be a very simple example in which if you're willing to accept maximizing economic efficiency as your goal, it suggests what the rules ought to be. And everything gets more complicated. If I go back for a moment, part of what law has to teach economists is the law often has to deal with concepts that are much more complicated than economists realize. So if you think about things like property, that the economist's natural instinct should say, well, you either own that piece of land or you don't. That's all there is to it. It's a nice, simple concept. We can do our economic theory on that. Right. Uh, If you look at, say, Ricardo, uh, who was really the first really good economic theorist, I think. Uh, And I don't think he ever discusses the question of, do you only partly own the land? But then you get into law and you realize that although I may think I own the land, 
I think, though I'm not positive, but the house I live in happens to be much older than most of the houses around. And I think I own half the width of the street in front of my house. I think the house is older than the street is. But I am quite confident that if that is true, some previous owner gave the city of San Jose an easement, permission to run a street down over a little bit of the edge of their land, and I therefore don't have the option of going out and setting up a traffic booth in front of my house and asking every passerby to throw in 50 cents or something. So that's a case where I own the property, except I don't really entirely own it because somebody else has some rights with regard to it. And there are lots and lots of other things. So that the way economists looking at the law have started to, started quite a while ago to think about it is that your ownership of land is really a bundle of rights. And it's not clear a priori what's included in that bundle. For example, I pretty clearly have the right to object to an airplane flying by five feet over my roof. But I have no right to object to an airplane exactly over me a mile up. Mm. Uh, I probably have the right to sue you if you shine a megawatt laser through my window and set things on fire. But I don't have a right to sue you if you drive down the street and your headlights shine through my window, and that's demonstrated with some photons you generated are trespassing on my property. So that, that one of the things that I think law has been useful for is forcing economists to think more carefully about the concept of owning things and realizing that ownership is not really the sort of all or nothing thing we think about. It's rather a bundle of rights. And then what then pushing back to the law, one of the interesting legal questions is what ought to be included in that bundle of rights? How would you decide when I buy the land? What do we normally assume are the rights associated with it? One of, one of the interesting examples I discuss, and I'm not sure it's still true, but it was true for a long time, that the state of Pennsylvania, as you may know, is made largely out of coal. And this raises a problem because suppose I've got a nice house on the surface of the land and you are digging a coal mine underneath it. Uh, your coal mine might collapse, at which point my house suddenly drops 100 feet. And what the situation used to be, I don't know if it still is, is that ownership of land in Pennsylvania was divided into three different estates. There was the surface estate, which was the right to build stuff on top of it. There was the mineral estate, which was the right to dig stuff underneath it. And there was the support estate. The support estate was the right to have your surface not fall down. So that meant that if I owned the surface estate and the support estate, and you owned the mineral estate, you could still mine coal underneath my land. But you had to make sure to leave enough of it so that the surface didn't collapse. Right. On the other hand, if you owned the support estate, you no longer had that obligation. Uh, so that was sort of an interesting way in which looking at the law helps you think more carefully about the economics, which is so it, it does go both ways. But most of what most of it's been economic imperialism. Most of it's been economists saying, look, you have to understand economics, to understand the law. And not that much has been law professors saying, no, you have to understand the law and understand <laughs> economics. But 
it goes both ways. Right. And and I just want to, I had a couple more follow-up questions to that and we'll move on yeah. to in a sec, but just to drill into something and put a sort of a bow on one thing that you touched on, I think is very important is that you said when we're shifting our mentality to <clears> thinking <throat> about the law from more of the economics perspective, you say in the book that often people are looking sort of the wrong direction, which is backwards. In other words, yes. that people think of like, it's about writing X, Y, and Z wrong. Whereas in reality, if I'm understanding everything you said correctly and to drill into a little deeper is that as you said, you want to set up a situation where you're also thinking about the incentives yeah. it creates moving forward, too. Right. Yeah, the bad thing in the past has already happened. And we have sort of various feelings about who should compensate whom. But the question we're mostly interested in is, uh, will having this rule cause people to behave better in the future? The example I use in the book is to imagine that you have a rich uncle uh, you, he, he goes uh, mountain climbing with you, which perhaps was a little foolish of him. And you take a convenient opportunity in a light isolated spot to push him off a cliff. And unfortunately, by extraordinary bad luck, there just happened to be a bird watcher on the next hill over with his camera pointed at you at exact point it happened and he took a picture. So you end up in front of a court accused of murder. And after it has been determined, you really committed it. The uh, your your lawyer says, well, your honor, it's true. He was a wicked nephew, but he only had one rich uncle, so we can never do it again. And even even if he had another rich uncle, we are quite sure that another rich uncle would not go mountain climbing with him again. (laughs) Consequently, punishing him for this achieves nothing at all. So why bother locking him up or executing him or whatever? And the right answer is that the reason to do that is to establish a rule which will deter future poor nephews from pushing their rich uncles off mountains. Uh, that in that sense is looking forward, forward, not back. And this is not a point invented first by economists. There's some f- famous quote from some legal scholar, I think in the 19th century, which I can't give you exactly, but it's something to the effect that we, we, punish, uh, we, we punish thieves and murderers, not in order to do something about that theft and that murder, but in order that thieves and murder theft potential thieves and murderers in the past in the future will be deterred it's not he used different language but that's what it's basically saying so but they but certainly from the economic standpoint you can't do anything really about the inefficiency of things in the past Mm. since economic efficiency treats a dollar to one person as equivalent to a dollar to another person that's one of the things can be criticized about it but it is the way we do it so when you when I pay you damages, there's no economic efficiency effect at all. I'm $100 worse off, you're $100 better off. But when I'm deterred from doing something, let me give you an, an, another example that I think is interesting. And that is that a very clever person who's heard the last few things I said might say, well, why should you object to people picking pockets or, or stealing? Because after all, when someone steals $100 from me, he's $100 better off. I'm $100 worse off. Isn't that a wash? And the answer is, that would be a wash. But the fact that he can make money by stealing from me gives him an incentive to spend time and effort uh, finding people knocking on the head and emptying their pockets or uh, breaking into houses or whatever. And if you think about it for a while, if supposing there were no, there were no punishment, there were no crime, no criminal law, uh, if I can make $100 an hour as a thief, there are going to be quite a lot of people who are attracted to that profession. As they are attracted to that profession, the returns go down because people are more likely to put bars on their windows. They 
will be careful not to carry much money when they're in their pocket, when they're out places where there might be pickpockets. If I do see a rich guy with and reach into his pocket, it turns out it's empty because another pickpocket picked it three minutes, picked it three minutes before, and so forth. So the returns from theft or pickpocketing will keep going down through more and more people doing it until you reach the point where stealing $10 costs you the amount of time and effort that you could have used to make $10 working at McDonald's. Well, at that point, you're no longer better off. Your victim is worse off. So there's a net loss. So that the economist way of thinking about what what is wrong with theft is ultimately not that it is wicked, but that it gives people an incentive to spend their time and resources transferring money to themselves instead of producing stuff. And that's a net deadweight loss. And once you think about it that way, you realize that theft isn't the only thing in that category. Mm. That arguably politically lobby, political lobbying has exactly the same logic, that you are spending money and resources, spreading your ideas and bribing politicians and doing things of that sort in order to get the government to take money from someone else and give it to your clients. Well, the transfer of money may be harmless, but the efforts to get it both by you and by the victims defending themselves, are a net weight in net net cost. This is what economists refer to as rent-seeking. And the term was coined by Ann Kruger. And her interesting example was countries with exchange controls, uh, like India and Turkey at the time, where if you were in India and you needed dollars to to import goods from the U.S., you needed permission from the government to exchange rupees for dollars at the official rate. And the reason was that the official rate greatly overvalued the rupee so that you were, in effect, the piece of paper saying you were allowed to to, to get $10,000 for rupees was itself worth $5,000 or so because you were the, the rupees were only worth half, half what you were getting. If you received dollars, as an exporter, you were obliged to turn them over to the government at the official rate. And, and Kruger analyzed the amounts involved, and she concluded that the resources spent competing over who got these import permits were burning up something like 5 to 10% of the GNP of a poor country. Mm. Uh, but that's not the original article. The original article, as far as I know, uh, she coined the term rent-seeking, but the original article was by Gordon Tullock, It was called The Welfare Costs of Tariffs, Monopoly, and Theft. And he was applying the argument much more generally. Uh, There's a standard economic argument about the costs of monopoly due to the fact that a monopoly produces an inefficiently low amount of whatever it's producing. And Tullock said, but that's not the only cost. If you anticipate that a particular industry is going to be a monopoly in the future, say an industry is just developing, It pays you to lose money over a period of time in order to establish yourself as the one company in the field so that you can then get monopoly profits thereafter. And in principle, if many people see this and compete to do it, they compete away the monopoly profit. That's a pure deadweight cost. So is lobbying for tariffs. Uh, So so that's a, a case where starting out with how do we justify laws against theft, you end up with a much more general argument which suggests that there are real costs to having mechanisms by which people can transfer money from one to another. Uh, And which includes the tort system, of course. That's Mm -hmm. one of the downsides of the tort system is that you have an incentive to spend resources suing people, uh, even if they're innocent. 
if there's a, a reasonable chance of convicting about convincing a jury that they're guilty, uh, and similarly for other things. So, so basically, economics is sort of a fun and interesting way of, of thinking about legal systems. And one of the things it can be used to do is to recommend make recommendations about legal rules. And that's usually done from the standpoint of maximizing economic efficiency, but you could imagine other ways. You could have somebody who's an egalitarian and he says, I'll use these same tools to figure out which legal rules do or don't benefit the poor at the expense of the rich. And it's not always obvious which ones do, because sort of one of the standard, again, again, a fairly standard example, is you have a legal rule which says that all apartments that are rented have to have hot water. And you're tempted to say, well, look, that's helping poor people because the poor people are the ones most likely to be in the cheap apartments that don't have hot water. It's at the cost of the landlords. They're probably rich or at least not as not as poor as they. But then you think about it a little more and you say, wait a minute. Uh, There is a cost to the landlord to putting in hot water. And that cost is going to affect the rent he ends up charging. Right. There's a competitive market for for. And if you work through it, it's a fairly straightforward economic problem, I actually worked it through long before I got into law and econ because it's in one of my, in an economics textbook that I wrote. And it turns out that it looks as though the, if the value to the tenant of the hot water is greater than the cost of the landlord, it will pay the landlord to put it in without any legal rule because they'll just charge a little bit more for the apartment and that will at least cover his cost. If the cost of putting it in is greater than the value to the tenant, then you end up with rents going up by more than the value to the tenant of having hot water, and your rule has actually hurt poor people. And in fact, one way of interpreting that rule, interpreting the politics behind that, that rule, which is, I forget the name, but there is a legal, a legal rule of law, not just hot water, but along those lines, minimum habitability, I think is the term, mm. is that it is a way in which well-off people make sure there aren't poor people in their neighborhood. Right. Uh, because, uh, so in that sense, it may well be a way of, of, of benefiting the rich at the cost of the poor. Uh, not clear, but, but, but none of this stuff is sort of as, it's just like when people talk about the effect of, of different tax rules, right? They always treat it as if the question is who is handing over how much money, but that's not the real question because you have to also ask how are, the prices in this price system affected by having to hand over money. So the stand, my standard example is the fact that social security taxes theoretically are paid half by the employer and half by the employee. And as any economist could tell you, this is nonsense because if the government says, when, uh, when I pay you a hundred dollars, the government gets $10. It doesn't really matter whether I take $110, hand $10 to the government and $100 to you, mm-hmm. or whether I take $110, hand $110 to you, and you have to hand $10 over to the government. Right. Where in the process they take the money doesn't matter. Uh, and therefore, in fact, who actually bears the cost is a much more complicated question. But it isn't really affected by the nominal division between the between employer and employee. That's just window dressing. That's going in a sense, beyond law and econ, but it's a, it's a fairly standard example of the same the same point that you have to think about the effects of the incentives on what people do, uh, and not just just as suppose you have 
uh, legal rules saying that when I sue your company for something, all of their emails can be searched by my attorneys to find evidence. Mm. Well, in a sense, that sounds sort of sensible, but there is a problem with it. Obvious problem is it gives you an incentive not to use emails for your communication if you're talking about anything that might be evidence against you. Right. And that's going to make your company work less well because they're not doing it. It also means that if it's a situation where I can oblige you to hand over the emails and finding the emails that you have to hand over is costly to you, I have a threat of imposing a cost on you just by making you do it. Uh, and can then say, well, I'll agree to drop the case if you will settle out of court for $100,000. It cost you $150,000 to do what I want you to do, whether or not you win the case. So there are all sorts of things of that sort where you want to think about, about those issues. But anyway, uh, if people want a sort of more detailed account, my book, Law's Order, uh, you can read a, a very late draft for free link to my webpage. You can get the, I think you can get either the, I think there's a Kindle of it as well as a print copy, which is probably available to the publisher. They probably charge a higher price than I would. Mm. I'm not sure, actually. Some of my books eventually went out of print and, they got, and I got the rights to them back. And then I put up versions of them at, at lower costs. Yeah, no, it, it was great to see all your stuff just available on your website online, too. That's awesome. So we definitely encourage everyone to check that out. Actually, a couple follow-ups to all that, but it is about the time. We'll, t- we'll take our break now. So everyone, you're listening to The Curious Task. I'm speaking with David Friedman today. The Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. Feel free to send questions, feedback, guest recommendations, or anything else that's on your mind to curioustask at liberalstudies.ca. As always, a huge thanks to our supporters on Patreon, including Janet Bufton, Peter Jaworski, and Scott Scheel. Remember to like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at The Curious Task, rate us on Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you're listening to The Curious Task, and check out the Institute for Liberal Studies. Welcome back, everyone. You're listening to Curious Task. I'm speaking with David Freeman today. So, David, our first half was great. We sort of set off in a, in a great direction that covered a bunch of the, the context setting questions that I, I, I was asking you. And as well, we got into thinking on the law like an economist. Um, I, I wanted to sort of round that off by by basically saying then some some people still are, are very stuck. And again, this is part of the, the whole motif of getting people to shift into thinking more like an economist rather than in some other ways that I suppose the idea to tie off a lot of what you're talking about, too, is that when you zoom out and look at the uh, a law or a legal system overall, then it really isn't about looking at things case by case to determine results in the sense of, oh, well, they didn't get it right in that case or such and such a judge didn't really make the optimal result happen in that case. It's more of like, I suppose, on the one hand, you need to look at it on a larger time scale, but also on net, if you will, not just whether one or another case gets decided in the quote right way. Yeah, that is to say... You would like, ideally, to only convict guilty people and to always acquit innocent people. And that's, that's a, a desirable objective, but the objective, that is an objective that is not worth an infinite price. And so, in practice, one of the decisions that's being made implicitly in any legal system is how high your standards of proof are. Right. How high, you know, if, if it's 90% sure that I did it, do I get punished? If it's 99%, if it's only 40%, and one of the in a sense, what seems weird features, though it may make some sense about the legal system, is that in principle, if you sue me and the court thinks it's 49% chance that I'm guilty, 
I owe you nothing. And if they think it's a 51% chance, I owe you the full amount of the damages. And that doesn't make sense in the sense that if you had a sufficiently wise legal system, you would have more something more like I owe 49% of the damage, 51%. But in practice, it's very hard to do that. Uh, and so we end up with a, a very approximate system. Let me give you another example of trade-offs, which is actually sort of an interesting one. And that is that you're, you, you would think that the only cost to raising, the only cost to being more careful to make sure you get, guilt, get only guilty people is the time and effort involved. But in fact, turns out that there's a much more serious cost. And that is that as the time and effort increases, you become less and less willing to give people trials. And we have then shifted to a situation where almost all felony cases are decided without a trial because almost all felony cases are decided by plea bargaining. So what happens is that uh, the, the, the prosecutor, in effect, says to the defendant, look, we can convict you of first-degree murder, probably, and you'll be in jail for the next 30 years. But if you're willing to plead a second-degree murder, you'll only be in, in jail for five years. So unless you're pretty sure you can get an acquittal, you should should plea, and whether you should plea to it does not depend on whether you're guilty or not. Depends on how likely do you think it is we can prove it. And there's an obvious incentive on the prosecutor to impose, to, to set as many possible charges as he has any chance at all of getting, so as to raise the cost to the defendant of going to trial. And then, uh, so that means that in practice, what you're getting is not a jury trial. What we have in theory is a jury trial, but almost no one actually gets one. Uh, it's one of the respects in which people wildly misperceive how the actual American legal system works. Well, how do you avoid that? Well, one way to avoid that is to have much shorter trials, except the fact that with much shorter trials, sometimes you'll get innocent people convicted or guilty people off because you haven't had enough evidence in, but they all get a trial. Uh, there's actually there's a very interesting article by somebody who was a colleague of mine in Chicago a long time ago where he is discussing an analogous problem historically, where the use of torture in medieval criminal procedures, he argues, came from their unwillingness to convict innocent people. Hmm. What was going on was they start out with a legal rule, which essentially says you have to be certain before you can convict somebody of a serious crime. I'm not sure if this is only capital crimes or not. I don't remember. Uh, which was also pretty much the rule in Jewish law in theory. That may be where it came from eventually. And, well, it's very hard to be certain. So they came up with it with a neat solution to that problem. And the solution to that problem was ordeals. The solution to that problem was that you have some procedure in which you ask God to tell you whether the person is guilty or not. So one version is you tie him up and you dump him into water. And if he sinks, the water is accepted him. He's innocent. You pull him out. Uh, if he floats, that shows that the water has rejected him because he was guilty, and you pull him out and convict him and punish him with him. And there were other such ordeals. And the there's an interesting article by uh, the by actually by, by somebody who contributed by Peter Leeson who contributed one chapter to my book, but he's got an, a different article of his where he argues the system worked pretty well. 
And the reason it worked pretty well was not that God was making the decision, but that the criminals believed God was making the decision, that consequently, if you were innocent, you asked for the ordeal, and if you were guilty, you went through a different a different path of the justice system, which there was no ordeal, that the priests who were running the ordeals realized this, and therefore the ordeals were usually rigged to acquit. And Peter actually offers some, I'm not sure if he's right, but it's a very neat piece, and he offers mm-hmm. some evidence for that. In particular, a bunch of cases, I think, in England, where only men were given the ordeal by water. Why? Women have more subcutaneous fat and are much more likely to float. Hmm. So the women were, I remember what the ordeal was. And at another a bunch of ordeals somewhere else where an implausibly large number of people picked up red hot iron without getting burned. And he thinks the iron wasn't actually red hot. By right. the time they picked it up. Uh, <laughs> so it's a neat piece. But then the next step in that is that the church eventually decided that ordeals were not legitimate. That it was that we were not entitled to, in effect, order God, order God to give us a verdict. So they stopped using our deals, and now how could you convict anybody? And the what they the, the the solution they finally found was that you torture somebody, and it's true that if he confesses under torture, that's not legally binding. But you stop torturing him, and you then ask him to confess. If he doesn't confess, you torture him again. So that's a system in which. Uh, in the process of trying to make sure they were certain, you end up with a very uncertain mechanism. Namely, now, in, in principle, of course, you're supposed to have good evidence before you torture him to start with. But since you know that the torture is going to give you a verdict, you may not be too careful about that. But that would be an inter- another interesting example of the basic point right. that you have to think through not just what you want your rules to do, but what they're actually going to do. Um, and that's not always obvious. Absolutely. And, and, and on that exact, you know, obviously the general theme today is, is, is a ways of thinking and tools, uh, you know, that you can use to think on, on law in a certain way. And I just want to get a little bit more particular focus on the economic speak for a moment, especially for someone maybe who is just starting to learn about economics or somebody that is wanting to actually is interested in law and wants to apply economics or maybe learn some economics to do that. Um, it, you know, obviously this could go on for hours in and of itself, but just at, at the highest level, what kind of are some of the most specifically important economic concepts people should learn to think on law if they don't already have those tools? Like, you know, is it everything from basic price theory to understanding incentives and externalities? Like, would you I would encourage- say price theory, price theory really is the core of economics and price theory is ultimately about incentives. Uh, but, but the, certainly the idea of market failure, of which externalities is an example, is one central element that that if you think about the simple economic model, which is a world where all markets are competitive, where everybody has full information and so forth, in that world you don't need anything. Uh, maybe you need rules to enforce contracts, although in principle, I have perfect knowledge. I also know if you're an honest man or not. Uh, but but almost large parts of law come from ways in which that first approximation breaks down. So part of the first approximation is that if I want an input, I've got to pay whoever, I got to get, have the permission of whoever is providing that input. Well, if the input is clean air blowing across your land and I've got a, a, a factory upwind from you, if there's no law about pollution, I can impose an externality on that on you. But there are a variety of other cases where on the one hand, standard economics tells you that given the constraints, you are not going to get the right answer from individual action. 
But then it becomes much harder to know what you can do about that because every time you set up a legal rule, you're now creating some new incentives and new opportunities for for uh, people to have the wrong incentives and thus do the wrong thing. That one, it isn't really about the law, but one of the points I often make when people are saying that uh, something like an externality is an argument for government intervention is think about market failure in the political market, that the market failure in the private market comes from situations where someone is taking an action and either he's not bearing most of the cost or he's not receiving most of the benefit. But in the political system, that's almost always the case. If a judge makes a decision which makes the world $100 million worse off, which you could easily do if he sets a precedent that then affects things for you know the next 50 years, mm-hmm. he never pays any of that $100 million. If a politician passes a law, good law or bad law, if he passes a law that makes people better off, he doesn't get that benefit. If he passes a law that makes them worse off, he doesn't pay that cost. So our mechanisms for making the government do the right thing, including the court system, are very weak mechanisms. We try to do it through democratic voting, but then the individual voter is facing a market failure situation because the individual voter knows that his vote has almost no chance of changing the outcome, changing who is elected. And if it does result in a better guy getting elected, the benefit of that is spread across hundreds of millions of people, not just to him. So it's a case where your externalities are very close to 100%. Uh, and therefore, it's not too surprising we get pretty bad results. Right. Uh, you know, we end up with Trump versus Biden, which is not the ideal pair of candidates. <laughs> Fair uh, uh, so, so the so in any case, that, that's the public choice side of this. But it's really all all one thing. But I would say, yeah, you want to understand simple price theory, and you want want to understand the applications of price theory to issues, especially externality. But to some extent, other things, public good problem, which is in a sense the same thing. The public good problem is that I'm producing something that benefits a bunch of people. I have no way of controlling who gets it, so how do I charge for it? And uh, the so that set of problems you need to understand. Beyond that, I don't think that economics of law has much to do with macroeconomics, which is a good thing because... I like to say that, of course, in macro is a tour of either a cemetery or a construction site. I think mm. I don't think we really understand the field in which we the sense in which we do understand price theory. Uh, but beyond that, I don't know. Read a law, read my law and econ book. It's, <laughs> I try to write my books so they're fun to read. Yeah, no, that's that's not a problem to end off with that one. And and as our conversation, our time together sort of ends in, into its final swing here, kick at the wall. I just want to cover off sort of, I don't want to call it like a, a, a prescriptive section because uh, of course no one's, unfortunately no one's going to listen to this uh, podcast and go run off and change a bunch of things the way we like it. But um, of course in, in your other work, and if people know you, they know that ultimately uh, you're an anarchist, especially as far as the, the, the state's concerned. So so this question isn't meant to say this is what you would ideal like, but but in, you know, in a world where we, we have states, ultimately... How could we improve things? Exactly. The trick would seem and to be the getting... Answer, Go that, the, the, the basic answer is shift more nearly towards freedom of contract. That is more nearly say that if you and I agree to something, that's an enforceable contract rather than the government saying you're not allowed to agree to work for less than $15 an hour, or you're not allowed to build a house which does not have uh, some features that that somebody thought houses should have, 
or you're not allowed to braid hair uh, unless the you have a license from the city saying you can braid hair. There are a whole bunch of ways in which we should shift much more towards a freedom of contract, laissez-faire world. Pretty obviously, that would also include things like legalizing drugs. Given that we have taxes, it would probably be a good thing to have taxation that's much simpler than it is. Uh, I'm given the date I've been doing my taxes. So um, <laughs> if I didn't have a computer program to do most of the work for me, I'm not even sure I could do it. It would take right. an awful lot of time. Uh, but there's clearly been an incentive for a long period of time to sort of gradually add this detail and that detail. And so you end up clicking a whole bunch of boxes saying, no, I am not a farmer who suffered from a hurricane this year. <laughs> right. And so forth. Uh, right. But other than that, uh, and I guess basically moving towards something much more like a laissez-faire mm-hmm. system uh, where you would still, you still, you always need a legal system. I, I have ways of, in which I think a legal system doesn't require a government. That would be, mm-hmm. that's my first book, Machinery of Freedom. Right. It's about that. But, but, it, but in our context, where it is a government, uh, you have a legal system, the legal system that, as it were, is sort of a de minimis legal system, a legal system where the system intervenes as little as possible and as much as possible is left to private individuals making their own agreements. Mm-hmm. Can you, can you, but think- that still gets more complicated because you still have the question. Yes, I signed the contract, but what does that mean? Right. That, that is, I think my father put it, there's never enough five point type. <laughs> you can never specify all of the possible disagreements. And so then one rule, one argument, in fact, for interpreting contracts in the economists maximize efficiency way is to say that is the rule that the parties would have agreed to if they thought about it. That if you think about a change in the terms of our contract, the question is, if I can't deliver my widgets on January 1st the way I promised to, what do I have to do instead? And if there's a way of changing, a way of, def- of answering that question, which makes me $10 better off and you $5 worse off. If we had considered it writing the contract, we would have written it in and I would have paid you $7 more we would have adjusted. So right. it makes sense to say the contract we would have written is the one that maximizes the frequency between the two of us, because the two of us, we can exchange dollars and, and I can pay you for, for things that benefit me by more than they harm you. And that therefore we interpret contracts that way. And that's certainly one way of doing it. Uh, can, can you think of um, maybe not necessarily that ultimately you'd conclude that it's better to have the state or sort of, you know, the, the, the state v someone else in, in the case itself or in that type of law. But can you think of a fun challenge that someone might need to challenge themselves on where you say it's not as clear cut or it's a little tricky to think about how it might not necessarily be the case that private law yeah. or private enforcement is actually yeah. the solution there? That is one, one obvious issue with children that clearly we don't really trust a two-year-old to make decisions in his own interest. And we are more likely to trust the parents when we may not always trust the parents. But then the problem is you then end up substituting somebody else. And sort of as a general rule, the parents are more likely to care about the kids than any other adult is. Uh, so you have hard problems in, in knowing to what degree should the state or other private parties for that matter mm. be ha, have the right to intervene between between parents and children. That's a, a heavily loaded issue. It's not clear what the answer is. That, that uh, the 
but that, that would be one example. Mm-hmm. Uh, another example would be the issue of controlling information that affects people. Uh, what should the limits be on my right to tell people things about you uh, that make you worse off. And on the one hand, maybe those other people should be able to find those. You know, if, you, if you've really been convicted of being a swindler, be nice if you're next people you do business know about it. But what about if you're not a swindler, but I think you are, or I don't like you, maybe I think you are and I'm wrong, should I be liable for it? the whole sort of issues around uh, libel and slander and things like that. I think Mm -hmm. there are quite a lot of hard issues. I think the whole question of intellectual property is a hard issue that uh, I spend one chapter of law's order on property in general and trying to explain why it's not clear that everything should be private property, that there are real advantages to things being private property, but there are also costs and so it makes some things sense that some things are treated as commons, as things that anybody can use, as well as many other things being treated as private property. And then another chapter on the application of that to copyright and patent, where <coughs> it's not at all clear <coughs> whether you should have laws on those at all, or if so, what they should cover. So those are all fairly hard, fairly hard questions in my view. And I'm sure there are others that I haven't thought of at the moment. Yeah, no, that's a very good one. The, the children one's a very interesting one because my sister's a, a paralegal and she deals in family law. And in Canada, in a lot of jurisdictions, they have, of course, the parents involved in a certain case. If the state feels like it needs to step in, you have like the Children's Aid Society. At some point, someone realized that that insective structure was a little wonky unto itself. So they created something called the Office of the Children's Lawyer, which is meant to represent just the child. And be. it's very interesting, the whole incentive the, structure. Just the largest be. case of mass... What I would describe as mass child abuse in my lifetime that I observed was done by the child protective authorities of the state of Texas. Mm -hmm. They were trying to suppress a religion, uh, namely the, uh, I forgot what they were called, but basically radical Mormons, uh, FLDS, uh, fundamentalist LDS, who were setting up uh, in, in Texas and they took 300 children away from their parents. The basis for doing that was what turned out to be an entirely bogus phone call. Hmm. They almost certainly knew it was a bogus phone call within a couple of days of the action. For a period of months, the authorities routinely lied to the public about the situation. They announced there were so many women who are minors who are pregnant and did not explain that they were unwilling to accept documentary evidence of age. And that therefore a minor met anybody who they said was a minor, including, I think, at least one 21-year-old pregnant married woman, as it turned out. Mm. Uh, And they only gave the kids back after unanimous decisions by both the Texas Appeals Court and the Texas Supreme Court saying they had no right to hold them. And it was pretty clearly an attempt to make the mothers abandon their religion in exchange of getting their kids back. So that's that's the downside. At, At one point, we had a possible job candidate at SCU, where I was a professor at the time, who had worked as a law student, as a volunteer, help providing legal advice to poor people in Ithaca, where Cornell is. And I asked him whether he thought that on net, giving the state the right to take children away, as they had under some circumstances, made things better or worse. And his answer was that he couldn't speak for the country as a whole, but in Ithaca, he thought it made it worse. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's very unfortunate. There isn't a good answer. Mm-hmm. You don't like the idea of leaving kids with parents who are mistreating them, but then it's hard to find somebody else who will predictably do better. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Anyway, 
And and with that, our time has pretty much wound down here. Right. So I'm going to move us to our, our formal wrap up, David. In each episode, I want to make sure the guest ultimately has the last word, put a finer point on everything. So let me ask you the the official last question of our episodes here. What do you ultimately hope are the main takeaways for someone listening to you here on what law has to do with economics or more properly, what economics has to do with law? In other words, if you wanted people to take just one, two, or just a few takeaways from anything we talked about here, if anything, what, what would that be? I guess the main takeaway would be that in order to make sense of the legal system, you have to think through how people will respond to rules, given that the people are acting mostly in their own interest. Uh, and you should not do your analysis on the assumption that most of the people involved will be out only to do good. There may be some people doing that, but most people in a legal system, in a political system, or on a market have their own private objectives, which are basically the welfare of themselves and the people they care about, and are going to acting on those, and you ought to take that into account in figuring out the implications. And the other thing I want to leave you with is that my webpage is daviddfriedman.com and will give you links to a large fraction of what I've written as well as lots of my talks that have been recorded. Awesome. David Friedman, thank you very much for joining me on The Curious Task. Thank you. It was fun. Bye-bye. The Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. This episode was produced by Alex Aragona, Sabine Elchidiak, and Eric Seging. Our executive producer is Matt Bufton. The music you hear on the podcast is by Lindy Voppenfjord. You should check out his other stuff online. The Curious Task exists today because of donations of time and money from those creating it and listeners like yourself. Check us out on Patreon and find out how you can support us and get access to exclusive offers. I'm Alex Aragona, and thank you very much for joining us on The Curious Task. Thank you.